We think women need to talk more openly about money because money really matters. It shouldn't be embarrassing or confusing. Join the conversation. We'll be discussing a whole range of topics which will help you get comfortable with your finances. Money Matters, brought to you by AJ Bell. Hello and welcome to another Money Matters podcast. I'm Danny Hewson and with me as ever is Laura Souter. Hi, Laura. Hi, Danny. Hello, everyone. So this podcast is going to be a little bit different because we've got not one, but two brilliant guests who are going to give us the lowdown on a common relationship myth. That myth is that cohabiting couples have the same rights as married couples or those in a civil partnership under what many refer to as common law marriage. But they don't, even if they have children together. And if that relationship breaks down or one of the couple dies, then they could find themselves dealing with a whole lot of unexpected stress and financial pressure. And to tell us all about what the law says right now, we've drafted in Tracy Maloney, aka the legal queen on social media, to spell it all out for us. We'll also be chatting to Lord Marx, the Liberal Democrat peer who's hoping that the bill he brought forward to change the law around cohabiting might one day become law. You probably won't be surprised to learn that cohabitation is the fastest growing family type in the UK. So there are 3.6 million unmarried couples living together, according to the Office for National Statistics. And that's a huge increase on the 1.5 million that there were in 1996. But lots of couples just don't realise they don't have the same legal status as couples who are married or in a civil partnership. And we thought that this was a really important subject for Money Matters to tackle because if a cohabiting relationship breaks down or one partner dies, there's no automatic right to inheritance or financial support, even if you've been together years and years. And that means, of course, that women in particular who've taken time out of their career, they've put it on the back burner maybe to look after children, well, they often find themselves at a major financial disadvantage. There have been calls for the law to be changed, and we'll get into that a bit more after we hear from Tracy Maloney. She's a solicitor at Tracy Maloney Family Law, but much better known to many as the legal queen on Instagram and TikTok, where she has more than 500,000 followers. We've drafted her in to tell us the facts about what rights cohabiting partners have and some practical tips on what to do if you're cohabiting and want to make sure you're protected. So where does the law stand on rights for cohabiting partners? Well, I mean, effectively, cohabitation doesn't give a general legal status, um, not like marriage would. You know, there's plenty of legal rights that will flow from marriage. I think that's the main difference. Some people can assume just because they've lived together for a long time in many cases that they will automatically have those rights. And of course, they don't. So what's different for married people or those in civil partnerships? What kinds of rights do they get that those people living together don't? So I think um, when you're married or civil partnership, we're not necessarily looking at just a financial contribution. You're looking at all contributions. So what I mean by that is that if you are, for example, married, but you don't work because perhaps you are caring for children, upon divorce, you are still going to have your needs met income needs, for example, housing needs. Whereas when you're just cohabiting, if you have played that same role, i.e. looking after children, you're not necessarily going to have your needs met. 
because you're not married. So, of course, that's an automatic right if you're married or in a civil partnership. Okay, that's really interesting. So then what are the kind of pitfalls then if that relationship breaks up? Because I think people um, think there's something called a common law marriage. Is that actually a thing? And will that protect them? It's There is no such thing as a common law marriage. So essentially, if you are the person within that relationship that is in agreement to, say, staying at home and therefore giving up your career, or perhaps you have come to the relationship without any assets, so you don't own your own house and you agree to move into your partner's house, you are really vulnerable, really vulnerable. Um, Because if the relationship breaks down, then ultimately you'll walk away with nothing. You have no rights to that person's property if it's just in their name. Um, Even if you've paid all the utility bills, let's say, if you have, you know, furnished the home and decorated the home, you will still have no rights to that property in the event the relationship breaks down. And I think that's where people need um, a better understanding of their rights. They assume that this common law marriage exists and it doesn't. It's an absolute myth. And so what about if you've kind of financially contributed to that? So say the property is in one person's name, but you've contributed to the household um, bills. So for example, you've maybe paid half of the mortgage or half of the the rent that's in the other person's name. Does that kind of get you anywhere or not? So it becomes a little bit complicated. I think the, the best way to describe it is if you have made a significant financial contribution, must be significant, and you have caused the property to increase in value, or you have paid the capital part of the mortgage, not the interest only part, but the capital part, then you could stake a claim. But it certainly wouldn't be a 50% claim. You know, you're still looking at a minority claim to that property because it's not legally yours. It's in the other person's name. And so I guess there are particular considerations for what we might consider the kind of financially weaker person of the relationship, which doesn't sound like a great phrase, but for those people where maybe they've had children together and like you say, they've taken a a more caring role or just the person who maybe earns a lot less than the other, what are the kind of potential issues that you need to think of if particularly if you're in that position where you're not um, the major breadwinner in the relationship? Well, if the relationship breaks down, how are your needs going to be met? I think that's the first consideration. So with a married couple, we're looking at housing needs, income needs, capital needs. With a cohabiting couple, we're not looking at any of that. The only, I suppose, protection that we have if there are children involved and the carer of those children who perhaps has no income and no property in their name, they are able to make an application, but under the Children's Act. So it's almost it's called a Schedule 1 application. And what that means is they're making an application under Schedule 1 of the Children's Act on behalf of the children, essentially saying to their ex-partner, could you please provide me with a lump sum or at least meet the housing needs of the children and therefore, by default, my housing needs because I care for them. But it is essentially for the children and not for them. But without children, if they are the um, lesser of the two in terms of income, they earn less and the property is not in their name, 
the real risk or the, uh, the reality is that they could walk away with absolutely nothing and have to provide on that lesser income, even though throughout a relationship they could have enjoyed the other person's income. What I mean by that is, you know, nice furnishings, living in a nice area, drive a nice car, enjoy nice holidays. None of that counts if you're not married and you simply walk away. You'll just take what's yours. And that's even the case, even if you've made a decision jointly as a couple that that person would be the lower earner, whether that's for, you know, childcare needs or for other reasons, that's yeah. still the case. Yeah. So I've I've run cases in the past where couples have got together um, and they're on the same sort of income. We don't necessarily have children, but one of them suffers medically. And of course, while the relationship is still ongoing, um, the other person promises to look after them. When the relationship breaks down, that's it. They, they, they don't have that protection anymore. And, you know, the one case that I'm thinking of, the um, lady had been unwell for a period of six years. So she hadn't been earning in such a long time and had to literally leave with just her benefits. That was all she had. The house wasn't in her name. It was quite sad, but that's the reality, you know, and, and it does happen. I think people think, oh, it, it doesn't happen, but it actually does. In reality, it happens all the time. And I guess that's partly because lots of people obviously don't go into a relationship thinking that it's going to end in a breakup or least of all end in a messy breakup. But if you are in that position of kind of cohabiting, whether you've got children or not, what are some of the things that you can put in place to help protect yourself should the relationship break down or is there anything that you can put in place you can put in a cohabitation agreement where you can define what's going to happen upon the breakdown of the relationship so for example if you decide to be the carer of children or an illness strikes throughout the relationship a cohabitation can cover you for that so you know only only for the fact that i made the decision to stay at home with the children i would have actually been earning the other thing i say to people is if there are no children always consider it as if what would I be doing if I wasn't in this relationship? You'd have your own money. You'd probably be investing in your own property. You'd be perhaps building your own asset pool. Continue to do that. You know, continue to be mindful. What I've seen over the years in practice is that the person who owns the property continues to pay the mortgage. And the person who's not named on the property says, well, I tell you what I'll do. I'll be the one to pay for the holidays. I'll be the one to pay for all the furnishings. And of course, when the relationship breaks down, they've got nothing to show for it. So always keep building up your own independent asset pool. And so should it be also be a case where if you've been living together for a while and your name isn't on those mortgage documents or isn't on the title deeds for the ownership of the property, is that something that you should be pushing for and pushing your partner for if you're contributing to that? But, I mean, I would. If, if I was in that position, absolutely. You know, I would be very clear that if I'm going to be contributing towards the mortgage and paying that down, then I'd want some sort of recognition for that. And the easiest way to do that is to be added to the title. But, of course, it becomes complicated if, let's say, the property was inherited by your partner or the sufficient equity in that. You know, a cohabitation agreement could also come into play to protect the equity in a property prior to the relationship. But it 
can get a little messy. So I think the most important thing to do, even, and and the, the issue is, Laura, that when people are going into a relationship, they don't want to come and see us. And that's when they should come and see the family solicitors because that's when we can build in the protection um, as opposed to after the event. So also, I think more people now have combined finances as well, even if they're cohabiting. So they might have a, you know, a joint current account or even joint savings. How are things like that where it's jointly held in both names? How are they viewed if the relationship then broke down? So if it's a joint bank account, it would be 50-50. You know, joint savings would just be 50-50. I think, you you know, you get into um, sort of murky waters if perhaps it's a joint debt that's only in one person's name. So what I mean by that is let's say that, you know, you might take out a loan to buy a new car that's for both of you but actually that loan is just in your name, be very difficult in the event of the relationship breaking down for you to get your partner to pay that loan back. Do you know what I mean? And so you must witness a lot of these conversations between couples. If someone wants to tackle this conversation and raise some of these issues, but they think that their partner might not be the most receptive to it, what's the best way to to go about doing that? I would say step one, independent legal advice, because I think that if it's really important to you, get your legal advice, speak to then your partner from a qualified position. Okay, keep it very factual. I think what I always say to clients is don't allow the emotion to come into it. Keep it very factual. There's a reason, you know, it's not because you don't trust your partner. You are looking to protect yourself and then encourage your partner to go and seek their independent advice so that a solicitor can also tell them the pitfalls of not being married and what potentially could be the risks to the more vulnerable party. And is the easiest option just to get married, even (laughs) if it's just for practical reasons? Definitely not. Definitely. (laughs) What a lot of people forget is that marriage is a contract. It is a legally binding contract. So you don't want to enter into that lightly. Um, But yes, you you just have to be aware. I think it's the awareness piece that needs a, a bigger voice. It really is because so many people think, as you said earlier, Laura, that there is this common law marriage. So we, I think, we need to try really hard because the reality is that marriage in in England and Wales is on the decline. More and more people are living together. So it's becoming a bigger and bigger problem. And because of that, there have been calls for reform with some people saying that, you know, these extra um, kind of benefits and rights given to married people is now looking a bit outdated as more and more people aren't getting married. Um, Mm. What's your view on that? Do you think that there should be reform? Absolutely, there should be reform. I mean, I think because it's more commonplace that people don't get married, that the law has to build in some um, adequate protection for the more vulnerable party. I think the age old argument or the difficulty there is at what point does the law apply? So what I mean by that is, are we an official cohabiting couple after a month, after six months, after a year? You know, because we have to be mindful of people that would perhaps use the law to their advantage and deliberately get with somebody who was financially in a much better position than them as a cohabitee and then make a claim to their wealth. So I think the difference marriage we have that line in the sand we have the date of marriage or we have the date that we began living together if we make a seamless transition into marriage but with cohabitee couples it's very difficult 
But yes, I would definitely support reform. How that reform would look, I don't know. (laughs) That's the hard bit. And so if people wanted to get that independent legal help, how much does that cost on average? So that's going to vary from where you live. So typically, if you're in London, for example, an hour with a solicitor might come anywhere from sort of 300 to five, six, 700 pounds per hour. Um, But typically, you are able to telephone a law firm and say, look, I just need a consultation with a solicitor. Could you please give me the price for the hour? And you will get that information over the phone. But you're looking at a starting point of maybe 175 and from there anywhere at all, really. Like the bigger firms will maybe charge you five, six hundred pounds for the hour. And of course, it falls back to the experience of the solicitor, how long they've been practicing, the size of the firm. If you're on a budget, I would say go to a smaller high street firm. If actually it's quite a complex matter with high net worth, then perhaps use a more experienced solicitor that may be sitting in a larger commercial firm. So you've obviously been working in this area for a long time. Do you have any examples of some kind of, I don't know, particularly bad or memorable cases that really bring to life the issues that come with cohabiting? Absolutely. I mean, the one that that always stays with me, um, I represented a client who had been in a relationship for 28 years with the same gentleman. They'd had five children together. And at the time the relationship broke down at his request, um, she still had two dependent children. So two children under 18. They, The couple had agreed that she wouldn't work, that she would be the home carer, that she would look after the children. Um, so she was in her late 50s, I think, when the relationship broke down and it was quite heartbreaking when I had to advise her that she was entitled to nothing she had to walk away from a property that she'd known as her home for 28 years Um, I'd advised her to make a schedule one application to assist her with housing the two dependent children and she wasn't able to afford that Um, she had to go into initially she went into sort of rescue accommodation emergency housing um, because he, he literally asked her to leave gave her four weeks to go um and it was just so sad you know she had nothing except the clothes that she walked away with that's just shocking isn't it after so long and just I think is a really good example of highlighting why people need to think about the implications of this and and do things to protect themselves even if it feels a bit uncomfortable having that conversation with your partner absolutely yeah I totally agree Tracy Maloney there, that is the status quo. Really useful, clear, important information if you're one of those 3.6 million unmarried couples. Um, As we say, there have been numerous calls for the law to be changed. And late last year, the UK government rejected the main findings of an inquiry by the House of Commons Women and Equalities Committee recommending better legal protection for cohabiting couples in England and Wales. Ministers said they need to complete existing reforms around marriage and divorce before considering new legal changes for cohabitants. Now, as Money Matters is all about empowering women, we try to speak to as many women as possible for this podcast. But we're going to make an exception this time because Lord Jonathan Marks is the Liberal Democrat peer who has twice put forward a private member's bill calling for change to this law. I caught up with him to ask him what his bill was all about, what had happened to it, and whether he thought there was any chance of taking it any further. Thank you so much for talking to us. 
Um, for people who don't know who you are, just give us a brief introduction. So I'm Jonathan Marks. I'm uh, a practicing barrister and have been practicing for a very long time. Um, but I'm also in the House of Lords and um, I've been there since um, the first part of 2011. I joined at the beginning of the coalition government and I'm the Liberal Democrat spokesman on justice in the House of Lords, a post I've held for about um, 11 years. So the reason that we're talking today is because you proposed a private member's bill on cohabiting and making some recommendations for change. Just explain exactly what that bill was all about. Well, the fact is that um, cohabiting couples uh, have very limited protection at law and the protections they have are outdated and difficult to work. So if I can start off by saying that the number of couples cohabiting in um, England and Wales is uh, massively on the increase. Uh, there are now uh, 7.2 million people, 3.6 million couples uh, living uh, under our law with uh, no protection and a very large number of them, something like 40% on most um, assessments, believe they have the protection of something that's known colloquially as common law marriage, when that is all a big myth. Uh, although they have limited protection for minor children uh, so that they can apply for um, maintenance, they have limited protection if they've entered into um, a joint purchase of a property, or they can say that they're entitled to an interest in property. But that protection depends on very old-fashioned trust laws. Uh, and although the courts do try to help, um, it's A, very expensive, uh, and B, a very uncertain outcome. And it just depends on property. For everything else, uh, there's no protection. And very often in these relationships, People go into them and then they get um, tied up in the relationship. They have children, they give up careers, they give up their jobs, they look after the business of their other partner without having any proper registered shareholding in that business. Uh, and they effectively land themselves in a position of real disadvantage. And then if the relationship goes sour, and they leave the relationship, it breaks up. They're left with absolutely no recourse and very much worse off sometimes than they would have been if they'd never gone into it in the first place. Sometimes with uh, children to look after, sometimes with um, careers that they've long lost and are very difficult to start up again. And often you so, find that it's the woman who is the financially inferior in these situations. I mean, I know society has moved on, but still women tend to be the ones in the relationship that stay at home and look after the children, that take career breaks or put their career aside to look after children. So what would your bill do? Because if in cases of divorce, if, if a, a couple is married, then those caring responsibilities are taken into account. 
That's absolutely right. And so are the contributions they might have made by giving up careers. And so is their future earning capacity. And all those things are taken into account under the present law. Um, and although it's not perfect, the present law of divorce, at least it gives everybody a fair crack at it. Um, whereas for cohabiting couples, that is simply not the case. And you're absolutely right, Danny. The fact is that although my bill is completely gender neutral, um, nevertheless, in these cases, it is the women who are usually the disadvantaged party. Um, not always, but um, they are disproportionately more likely to suffer from relationship breakdown at the end of cohabitation. So you ask what my bill would do. What it would do, it's, it's not the same as the, as the relief you get on divorce. It's not intended to be. But what it does is it would adjust the financial, the capital positions of the parties so that if there had been a disadvantage suffered by... Um, one party, uh, and the other one has taken uh, advantage of that, uh, then that disadvantage is adjusted. So it's effectively adjusting the capital position to make it fairer, not necessarily to split all the wealth, not necessarily to look at um, what one party has and then try and split it all down the middle, or both parties haven't split them down the middle, which is what largely happens on divorce. It's to adjust the unfairness. So where is the bill now? So I, um, it, I've introduced it, I think, three times in all. The third time I didn't get on the ballot for a second reading, but um, the first time it was debated at second reading um, in 2014, uh, and then again in 2019. And remember, throughout this period, up to date, all the um, indications are that this problem is getting worse, not better. The government on both occasions have said, well, we see what the Law Commission said, but um, we don't think the time is right now. It's significant that Scotland has had very successful legislation much along the same lines uh, for many years, and it's worked well. There's been a case in the Supreme Court where Baroness Hale um, said basically that English couples should fare just as well. Um, the Labour Party were pro it and committed to it in 2014. In 2019, we had a rather a, a woolly response from the Labour Party. Um, but my view is that we won't get anywhere with it until after a change of government. If the Labour Party were in power with or without um, our help or with or without others, uh, then I think we would get some uh, movement because the overwhelming feeling within the Labour Party and uh, as it, although it's our party policy, um, they're broadly for it, uh, then I think we would get movement. Why has it become a political issue? Because, you know, this affects so many people. It's very difficult to say, and it's particularly annoying because the Law Commission, which is a completely independent body proposing sensible reform of the law, um, has made these recommendations a very long time ago and they haven't been implemented. And my bill... Um, reflects those completely. Just to say a word or two about the intestacy provisions, at the moment, you don't even have the right if your partner dies in a cohabiting relationship uh, and your partner owns the house to inherit the house that you both live in. The only protections you have are if you can establish a trust in respect of a, a property and you have um, some protection for income, 
if you can show you were dependent. But often with two people working, that's not not possible. Now, the government has said that it, it does feel that more needs to be done to make people aware of this situation. How could that be done? Because you're absolutely right. So many people still believe in the idea of common law marriage. Well, I suppose you can have a campaign of public education, but very often with all these public education campaigns, it's the people who already know what the problem is, who are more likely to be listening to the public education. And the people that we really want to reach are the people who don't actually know and don't think politics is for them and aren't concerned to listen to um, this kind of campaign. And I have bluntly no confidence that we can really reach people unless we are actually proposing a change in the law, at which ca- in which case there would be a lot of publicity for what we were doing and people will gradually come to know what the situation is now and what the situation might be if we achieve a change. Lord Marks, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Danny. Lord Marks, the Liberal Democrat peer, talking to Danny there. It's important to note that Lord Mark's bill would not give cohabiting couples the same legal protections and rights as married couples, but it would provide some basic cover. As we said earlier, the government did accept some of the recommendations made by the Women and Equalities Committee last year, including a call to raise public awareness of the legal distinctions between living together and marriage, but says existing work underway on the law of marriage and divorce must be completed first. Yeah, in a statement released at the time of the committee's report, a spokesperson for the Ministry of Justice said any new legal rights and obligations afforded to cohabitants would necessarily need to be considered against a baseline of rights afforded to married parties or civil partners on divorce or dissolution. Now, awareness on this is so important. So if you do know anyone you think might find this podcast of interest, do let them know all about it. Yeah, I was really amazed at some of the stuff that Tracy was talking about there. And I've been spreading the word to all of my friends who are cohabiting rather than married. And I think a lot of them are quite surprised to learn a lot of those those facts. Um, but also while you're spreading the word, we've got podcasts and articles on various different topics from budgeting, finance and divorce. And our next episode is going to look at pensions and whether it is ever too early to start saving into your pension. But right now, it is time for the bit you've all been waiting for, the bit Laura's always waiting for, Laura's <laughs> confessional. Now, this week, it is slightly different because we're going to be hearing your confessions. Now, these were shared by Money Matters listeners at an in-person event we held in London recently. They've been voiced up for us by Money Matters team member extraordinaire, Rachel Peacock. On more than one occasion, I'll go into my overdraft to buy and take away coffees. They make me happy. I think there is no shame in indulging in a little bit of takeaway coffees. I am also a fan, although it does make me wince slightly that they're going into their overdraft for this. But anyway, let's hear the next one. Purchasing some lovely Louis Vuitton goodies. Can I claim they're an investment? 
Oh, Louis Vuitton goodies. I, I have to say that my budget doesn't stretch that far because I've got two teenage daughters that are buying way cheaper stuff, which does not hold its value. But I reckon that some Louis Vuitton stuff, you know, handbags and the like, are an investment. You can certainly sell them secondhand. Putting money in a stocks and shares ISO and then not investing it in anything for years. This actually was quite a common one that came up in a few places is, you know, people decide to start investing, fund their account and then forget to do the next stage or feel overwhelmed at the next stage of actually investing in the money and leaving it in cash instead. So I think this person is not alone, although the fact that they left it in cash for years is quite the admission. Spending far too much on taxes when I fall asleep on the train. Now, I have done this, I have to say. I have fallen <laughs> asleep on the train and then had to get a taxi back to the station where I had left my car. Um, yep, <laughs> it, it, it's not great, but it's completely understandable. <laughs> so I had this great theory that helps with things like this, and it's called the idiot tax. And you allocate yourself a certain amount of money each year for your idiot tax, and it's things where... You just make mistakes or you forget things and you end up incurring a financial penalty for it. And I would definitely shelve emergency taxes when you've fallen asleep on the train in my idiot tax pile. I like that. I don't think that there's enough money in the world to cover my idiot tax pile. But there we are. <laughs> Look, if you do fancy sharing a financial confession with us, we would love to hear from you. Do get in touch on social media or via email moneymatters at ajbell.co.uk. And don't forget to sign up to our newsletter as well so you don't miss an episode or all the articles that we put out with helpful tips and advice. You'll also get notice of our in-person events there as well. Just head to AJ Bell Money Matters and you can sign up there. Until then, thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. Leave us a message. It really does help other people find this podcast. And yeah, see you next time. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.